tuning in to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka. We're also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org, and you can catch us on Facebook on the New Haven Independent Facebook page. So if you sometimes time during the show leave your car and end up inside of your office you can just log on to the computer and pick up where you left off so today we have in the studio Camille Scott Mujahid who is the training director of Connecticut Corps Organized Now has been organizing in New Haven for the past 10 years she moved here from El Paso Texas in 2003 attended Yale University from 2003 to I'm 2009 to 2013. She was the director of Teach Our Children and Youth Unleash, a parent and youth led or community organization dedicated to increasing parents and students involvement in school improvement efforts from 2013 to 2015. She worked with as a major gift officer at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. Camille recently transitioned out of her role as associate program officer at the Perrin Family Foundation, where she implemented grant-making and capacity-building strategies to strengthen the youth-led social change sector in Connecticut. Camille is a member of the People Against Police Brutality and has been active in New Haven's Black Lives Matter movement. So with such a long and extensive bio, we are definitely talking about grassroots organization today, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have the grassroots organizing F, uh, expert here. So welcome, Camille. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Mubaraka. Um, I don't know if I call myself an expert, but definitely um, <laughs> have had a lot of experiences that have taught me a great deal. In the uh, in the area of of experience, you have certain I think you can. You can say Mubarak said I was an expert. Okay. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) Awesome. So tell me a little bit about what brought you to New Haven. Did going to Yale actually bring you to New Haven? Yes. Yeah. Um, I still remember the moment when I was sitting in my car um, in El Paso driving around, which if you've ever been to El Paso, couldn't be more different than New Haven. And, uh, And I had been accepted to Yale, which was something I never imagined in my wildest dreams could happen. Um, And I was like, wait a minute, where is Yale? And I was like, (laughs) Connecticut. Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm moving to Connecticut. All right. And I had no, I didn't even have any conception of what Connecticut was like or outside of what I had seen on television. So I imagined what a lot of people imagine. I think that it's very white. It's very wealthy. It's, you know, these sort of pristine, snowy, you know, area like it's always cold and so i you know as i came and um you know i actually visited for bulldog days initially and um and i and i really didn't like it and i was like i oh boy because i had already said i was coming and i was like i don't know if i can do this but i was like i'm gonna go ahead and do it it's probably gonna be good for me and it really was um and i think my idea of what new haven was and what connecticut was was at first very wrapped up in what yale was Mm. And over time, I realized that the two things were very, very different and that there's actually a lot in New Haven that I could identify with as a young you know, black woman who grew up in a very poor area, in a poor family. Um, there was a lot in New Haven that resonated with me on a level that I don't think Yale ever really did. What what was what what got you out of the Yale of the Yale bubble in, oh, into a, New Haven? That's a great question. Um, when I was. Um, 
I think it was like sophomore or junior year. I was actually I had a job at the library at Sterling Memorial Library. I worked there for most of the time I was at Yale. And my boyfriend at the time had met somebody who was involved in an organization called the ISO, the International Socialist Organization. Mm-hmm. And my boyfriend was really into politics and social justice. And I was starting to get into it. I think I'd always been interested in politics, but hadn't really had much exposure to like social justice and organizing and activism work because it didn't really happen around me in El Paso when I was growing up there. And so um, it was actually, I would say around 2005 or 2006 when the Sensenbrenner law was being proposed, which if people remember was related to um, penalizing immigrants and people who offered support services and housing, anybody who supported immigrants in any way, it was a law that would criminalize that. Um, It was passed um, or it was proposed during the Bush administration And um, when I learned about that and they were, you know, this was one of the times also where they're talking about building a border wall and El Paso is on the border, Mm. you know, where I grew up. If I walked from the house I grew up in to the end of the block, one block, and and I'm standing on top of the hill looking down um, to the highway, I can see El Paso. I can see part of El Paso and I can see a good deal of Juarez, Mexico. Mm. Like that's, that's where I grew up. That was my like, that was my environment was the border. And so, and it's so different than I think how, especially people who are anti-immigrant imagine it. You'd think that it's a war zone, but it's actually a very peaceful place. I mean, there, there definitely um, violence that happens down there that is um, unacceptable and has taken a toll on people's lives. But for the most part, El Paso, Texas is, um, is, is a very safe city. Um, And people are accustomed to living together Mm -hmm. um so it so it's so it hit me in a really personal level um that issue um because i thought of all the people that i grew up with the people that i love who are immigrants or descended from immigrants and um and i thought about the idea of a wall being put up so there's no when you say you can see into mexico there's no (laughs) wall there there's like a gate i think or like a fence okay um so there's something there but i don't see that from where from where I'm standing, okay. like you can, you hill. can see the, and and if you go up on the mountain too, especially at night, it looks like one vast city. Mm. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like, uh, like there's, there's no real separation, you know, it going from El Paso to Juarez, Mexico is almost like driving to Hamden. Uh-huh. If there was a big fortified border between the two. Okay. So it's, <laughs> okay. it's, it's kind of bizarre. Um, but it's also because El Paso is somewhat of an isolated city within Texas. So Juarez is the next closest city. Okay. So, um, yeah, so that, so that was part of the reason why I got involved with this group and started going to meetings at Southern. Um, so I was getting off of Yale campus for that reason. I was um, getting involved with organizations like Unida Latina Nacion. So I was going to Fairhaven and meeting people who were immigrants who were undocumented, you know, going to the soccer fields. And we, um, when the raids happened after the Elm City resident card was after we, that. you know, the group won that um, Unidad Latina and Junta and all the groups that were working on that did amazing work there. Um, when that victory was won, ICE came in and started just rounding up people. So Ula and um, and Junta and some local congregations got together to raise money to get people out. And so we were, you know, at the soccer fields and that was an amazing experience just mm-hmm. talking to um people who were immigrants, people who were themselves undocumented, who were donating $20 and $10 right on the spot, just happy that there was there were people that cared mm-hmm. enough to, to do that work. Um, 
So that was a huge transformative experience with me. And I think it just underscored um, something important. I think that's crucial to the way that I see the world is that it's important to, to really talk to people and get to know people and look them in the eye mm. when we're talking about issues that affect their lives. Like the people who are the most directly affected should be the ones who are centering and who were really um, following whose lead we're following. Mm. So as you, so as you, it got into New Haven and you got this experience of dealing with kind of like the regular New Haveners, as we call it. <laughs> and we can say, um, is that what made you like us? <laughs> <laughs> what made you decide to stay here? Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, th- that was actually a really, um, there was a moment um, that was really personal and important for me um, and also kind of a sad story. But when I was graduating from Yale, <clears throat> my, um, I was raised by my my grandmother in part. Um, my mother um, struggled with drug addiction my whole life, and our home life was, you know, rocky and tumultuous. My grandmother um, was something of a saving grace for me and my sister, and um, and raised us and gave us a sense of stability that we wouldn't have otherwise had. And um, she got very ill right before I was ready to graduate from Yale, which was really painful because. She and the vast majority of my family never were even able to come up to Yale. So when I moved up um, to go to school, I, I came by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I brought, um, you know, I had some of my stuff shipped. I, I paid for my own plane ticket. I paid to have all my stuff shipped on my own. Um, and I was accustomed at that point in my life just because of the way that my childhood had been to um, doing things on my own. Um, but it was also really painful and difficult. And they were, um, you know, arriving, there were issues of like, I didn't have my money yet. And I didn't know, I didn't have anywhere to go. So it was kind of like getting out there without a safety net, but it was hard because I had imagined that my grandmother would come to my graduation. She was so proud and I wanted to share that experience with her. Mm. Um, But instead she got really ill um, and she, she fell and was in the hospital and then um, took a turn and um, she ended up dying two days after I graduated. So I was, I was a basket case. I, I, have a very vague memory of my graduation from Yale and it's something of a, an emotional trigger for me now. Um, but at the same time, as I was kind of contemplating going through this, this, this moment, this transformative moment in my life by myself. Um, well, one, a good friend of mine uh, who I was living with at the time um, had gone to the African American cultural center at Yale and talked to, at the time it was um, Dean um, Pamela George and um, she got some funds together and they arranged for my sister to be flown out to be at the graduation with me. So, you know, it, very grateful to them and to my sister for making the trip. Cause it was also a really difficult time for her, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I had friends from the activism work I had been doing in the community who I hadn't really shared much with them about what was going on. And I hadn't invited them to the graduation because in my mind I thought, well, I know how, the group feels about Yale and like, and, and I don't want to like, you know, center myself too much in the works. So I was just like, I'm just going to do this. Like, you know, there are bigger problems than me, like worrying about my graduation, but folks got wind of what I was going through and they on their own arranged to, um, to come to the graduation. So to my surprise, as I was walking through Phelps gate, which is this, like, this is the, this is the thing that you do when you graduate from Yale, everybody walks through Phelps gate at the right there at the gate was this group of people who were who were like my organizing family and they were oh. standing there they had cameras like just like what your family would normally do in that situation mm-hmm. 
I still get emotional thinking about it. It meant so much to me um, just to know that they cared enough to be there. So um, and also actually my my husband now Issa was also there. So this was before we were dating before, you know, you know, we even like really knew each other in that way. Um, and, and he came over to my apartment afterwards and like brought me a gift that I still have. And a few years later, (laughs) you know, we were dating and then we got married and now we have um, two children together. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. And so is that, is he from New Haven? Is he why you stay? Well, he grew, he grew up in Bridgeport. So I had decided to stay in New Haven long before him and I started to date. So I actually, that was the moment when I walked through the gate and I saw those folks here that I realized I had roots here and I had, um, and I have family here. And that um, and that I and that I wanted to I wanted to give something back to New Haven because I felt like I had gotten so much from New Haven in my time um, at Yale that, uh, you know, I'm really grateful for the Yale experience and for um, what I learned at Yale. But honestly, I would say I learned a lot more from the New Haven community than I learned at at Yale University, like the the lessons that have impacted me the deepest I learned from, Mm -hmm. you know, what what people most people I think would call ordinary people in New Haven, but mm-hmm. I have a hard time calling people in New Haven ordinary. You know? <laughs> awesome, the extraordinary people of New Haven. <laughs> awesome. So tell me a little bit about your work in um in the Teach Our Children and the effort to have youth and family led um, organizations. Yeah. Um, is this only around education, or tell me a little bit about? that that advocacy yeah so um i started at teach our children in um 2008 i think 2009 um initially i was hired as a bilingual organizer so my job was to go into the spanish-speaking community and engage parents and find out what was important to them um so that so the core of that work was education it was improving the schools um and the method was engaging you know initially it was engaging parents um directly and um, ha- and having those parents lead the work and 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 decide what the agenda is and how it gets carried out and to do the talking, you know. So mm-hmm. what what I liked about that work particularly was that um, I felt a bit like an outsider in a way, you know, because I didn't grow up in New Haven and it was okay. I was able to kind of to side sign line myself and 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 um and just make space for other folks to to lead that work because I didn't, I didn't know the answers to the questions that we were asking, but the folks who were coming in, the parents, and then eventually the students had, had the answers or sometimes more questions. What were were some of the, the main questions that parents have in, in this? Well, I think some, so some of the issues that we were working on at the time were um, uh, discipline um, and how, how students are disciplined. So there was some early work that was done to change the code of conduct and make it more specific on, um, certain disciplinary offenses to make sure that there was a process that was really clearly laid out um, to. And is this for the New Haven public schools? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, it was mainly at the public schools. We did work with some charter school parents, but we never got to the point where when I was there, where we were working in charter schools, because we were, we were sort of making that transition. I don't think had enough parents who were in charter schools to work on that. Mm-hmm. But um, within the public school, the idea was so um, if a student did something wrong, to ask, you know, is this the first time that they've done this? Um, and to and to have um, sort of an escalation that starts um, with with a kind of um, consequence that's not taking students out of the classroom or, God forbid, moving them into the criminal justice system. Something that sort of ratchets that down mm. um, and and focuses on, you know, teaching young people 
how to behave in the space rather than rather than penalizing them for every little every little small thing they do in a way that pulls them out of class. Um, and we were we were trying to work on sort of cutting off the school to prison pipeline. I think that was one of the the core pieces of that work. Mm-hmm. Um, when when we brought in Spanish speaking parents, we were also working on translation and interpreting uh, interpretation services because mm-hmm. um, there were a lot of issues that when I was out, you know, doing that work and engaging parents. I heard about a range of issues, but at the core of so many of the issues it kept coming down to, you know, and I was trying to speak to the teacher and they don't speak any Spanish or they didn't have anyone there who could translate for me. Um, so we started doing that research and found out that they didn't have interpreters at the board of education. A lot of materials weren't being translated. Mm-hmm. Um, and even orientations at the time weren't being um, there were no interpreters. So um, Spanish speaking parents were getting a letter saying this is a mandatory event you need to come to. And then they would show up and nobody would be speaking not to understand them. anything that's going on. <laughs> yeah. And so we so we were pushing we were pushing on that and we were um, we were pushing on discipline um, when uh, Youth Unleashed came on. And that was that was actually how I met Sabir um, when Youth Unleashed came on. They were at the time working on sanitation and school food, which was what, um, you know, what was closest to the young people's hearts. So we so that was what we worked on. And um, Mm. we did research that eventually turned into working on the budget. Um, And that was one of my favorite projects. We um, the the school district had changed the budget. So it was broken down by school. Mm -hmm. And so we took that apart and we gave um, the budget for Hill House High School to a group of Hill House students. And we gave the budget for, you know, um, a K through eight school to some K through eight parents and said, you know, let's take these back home, look them over, and then we're going to have a meeting. We'll just talk about That's what we really found. That's really fascinating. And so, what was the what was the feedback for the students? I, I I think one of the biggest things that the students discovered, um, they were able to co- to connect their real life experience to the numbers because they had been frustrated with the condition of their textbooks. You know, where they would get textbooks with pages missing, with mm-hmm. like writing all over them, and were told that they couldn't get new textbooks because the students just kept destroying them, and so. You know, they weren't able to afford new textbooks. But when you looked at the budget, um, there was um, a line item of something like a a hundred thousand plus dollars for assistant principals. There were like six assistant principals for a school of a thousand students and a twenty five thousand dollar budget for textbooks for a school Mm -hmm. of a thousand students. So that's twenty five dollars per student for textbooks. Have you ever bought a textbook? You know, that's nowhere near enough money. (laughs) (laughs) So we started thinking about, well, how can we. How can we talk to the school district about this in a way that also, you know, takes into account that the schools are underfunded. Mm-hmm. And so the young people came up with the idea to um, to uh, package it in a way where there were some open positions. And we were like, so if, if you don't hire new people for these open positions, but instead move some folks around, however, the school district sees fit, you could save enough money to be able to replace textbooks for the entire district every eight years. And um, initially there was a lot of pushback. And then eventually the school district um, adopted something similar to what the young people were proposing. Um, although I don't believe that they gave credit to the young people for having given them that idea. Um, so that's one of the challenges of that's organizing really too, is sometimes you push and push and push. And then at the end of the day, you have to, ser- you have to truly do it for the, the love of doing it and not yeah. for the credit. <laughs> I think, and I think some people had frustration with that when it came to the Elm city resident card and the, um, uh, the policy to make New Haven a sanctuary city initially too, because there was a really hard fight on that from grassroots groups. And when the, the when the um, the administration, when you know De Stefano's administration actually decided to adopt those policies after having resisted them for years, 
um, they were celebrated. The the city administration was celebrated for having um, adopted been it. compassionate yeah. and done that. <laughs> and, you know, the, I, th- I think community groups, they were somewhat celebrated, but definitely not as much as the leaders who had actually initially resisted it. So wow. that's generally how organizing works. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio, also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we're talking with Camille Scott Mujahid um, about grassroots organizing and advocacy and uh in New, in New Haven in particular. So you mentioned the idea of sanctuary cities when it comes to there's the, so that that's a big thing now in, in, in this political climate mm-hmm. um, being involved in kind of like where, where it started in grassroots. What is the definition that New Haven uses around sanctuary cities? You know, I don't know if I, I could say what the definition of sanctuary cities are, but I can say, you know, some of the policies that I know go into sanctuary cities Um I think the Elm City resident card is, was part of it, um, but I think the the center and remind people what that what the purpose of that was. Oh yeah, absolutely. So the the Elm City resident card was a city ID card that was um, offered to everybody regardless of immigration status. I actually worked there the first year, yeah. so I went I went through a lot of the process with a lot of people. Um, and I think what a lot of people don't know about that card is that it actually helped a lot of people who were not immigrants, and especially we had a lot of people who were African American coming in straight out of the criminal justice system who had no ID. And so a service that we provided um, was also to help them get their documents together. So what, so the the question that um, I often see people asking is what, how do you verify Does people just come in and say, I am this person and can I have an ID? So no. how did that work? We, we actually had extensive training in how to, um, and what kind of identification we could accept and how to verify that. So we were looking at consular IDs and we knew how to tell if they were fake or if they were real. Um, we, we were looking at passports. Um, and again, we knew how to tell if they were fake or if they were real. Um, so we had a set criteria for the kind of documents that we could use. And sometimes people would come in who were undocumented, who didn't have anything. They had lost their passports as they were coming to this country or just in their time here. And so again, a service that we provided was giving them the information about how to get those documents together. So often they would go to their consulate. Sometimes they'd have to go to New York City and they would stand in line. They would get those documents. They would come back and often they would still get the Elm City resident card, even though they had their passport. Now they had their consular ID. So some of it was getting people the card, but some of it was also just working with people to get their identification together, which I think is, is, is such an important service to be doing for the city. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that brings different communities together because we definitely had a lot of people from the African-American community coming in. Um, and this is an interesting um, sort of divide and conquer tactic of the opposition, especially people who are opposed to immigration. There was a group at the time, the Community Watchdog Project, that would stand outside of City Hall and protest and they were targeting African-Americans walking by or walking into City Hall and ignoring any white people that walked by and were saying, you know, you should be anti-immigration. These immigrants are coming. They're stealing your jobs. They're, you know, this, that and the other thing. The idea was to divide the black and brown community. Now, these aren't people who are standing up for black people in any other place in their lives. Mm. In fact, you know, the subtext of what they were saying was immigrants are stealing the low paying, abusive uh, exploitative jobs that you should be having. 
mm. black people. Mm. And so I thought so when folks would come in and they would be um, they would be like, you know, why are you working here? Why are you, you know, knowing that I was African-American too, saying, you know, why are you working here? Why are you helping these immigrants? What about our community? And we would just, you know, have like a five minute conversation and sort of pick it apart. And they would they would be quick to be like, oh, no, I see what you're saying. And then often they would get the ID and they would leave. So it was interesting. I think there's a lot of opportunities to bring immigrant communities and African-American communities. And I think also to recognize the existence of black immigrants and and to have a more nuanced conversation about what it means. I, I would say even what it means to be a sanctuary city. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this has come up recently in the way that I've been thinking about sanctuary schools as an idea Um that a lot of people are really pushing to make schools a safe space for immigrant children, which is so, so important. I can't overemphasize that. And at the same time, we know that schools are not always safe spaces for black students who aren't immigrants. And with the, um, uh, they have police in the schools now who are um, sometimes either intentionally or just by a function of the way that the system works, moving young people into the criminal justice system mm. when the school policies and, um, you know, where a student might have been, um, uh, you know, suspended or put in detention. Now they're getting involved with law enforcement at such an early age. Mm. Um, so, you know, I was thinking about how do we expand the idea of sanctuary schools to include that experience as well. And not just in a way of, um, you know, getting more people on board or selling the idea to more people, but in a way of really building solidarity between black and brown communities so that we can see our fates as bound up together because. So, so let's, before we mm-hmm. get into schools, let's, t- let's um, finish kind of like the policies around sanctuary cities. Yes. Tell me yeah. About that. So, so I think the the key policy in that made people refer to New Haven as a sanctuary city was the general order with police, which um, pro- um, prohibited New Haven police from collaborating with Immigrations and Customs Enforcement and like referring people to Immigrations and Customs Enforcement if they were pulled over, for example, for, uh, you know, routine traffic stop that, um, mm-hmm. you know, you deal with that matter at hand and you keep it moving. And the idea behind that was that um, there were a lot of people in undocumented communities that were too afraid to call the police even when they needed the police. If they had been mm-hmm. assaulted, robbed, if their house was on fire, um, if they knew something about a violent crime that had been committed in their community they weren't going to talk to the police because there was this division. So the idea was actually the police would ask about their immigration status, even though they were not involved. Right. Even if they were the victim. So, so that was something that I think even many in the police department were on board with because it helped them to do their job. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, people believe that it made the city safer. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know exactly what all the statistics are on that. And I think it would be, um, you know, a great thing to talk to some of the folks from ULA or Junta about as well, because they are going to be way better versed on this than I am. But um, I would say I just I was grateful for the experience of being able to be a part of that in any way. And um, I'm glad that we have that policy in the city, especially today. How did the Elm City ID card contribute to uh, the Sanctuary City platform of New Haven? Um, I think, well, the, the Elm City ID card was really neat because it allowed people to open bank accounts, which was also, so the there were several banks in the city that had said that they were going to accept the card. And I remember when I was working there, they didn't all follow through. Mm-hmm. And there were times when I had to walk into the bank with people and say, you know, hey, you all <laughs> promised us you're going to accept this. But um, the the idea was that, you know, undocumented people, again, were walking around with large amounts of cash. They had large amounts of cash in their house because they weren't allowed to open bank accounts. Mm. So 
and again, protection for undocumented people so that they can just live in this country and contribute right. and work and pay their taxes, which they do, um, and uh, and be safe. Right. You shouldn't have to have your $1,200 rent in your bottom drawer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so that was happening. And there were people who knew that and they were mm. targeting immigrants when they were when they were conducting robberies. And mm. so that that was um, one way of protecting the community um, and, and just and, and, and integrating folks into the community. Right. Oh, OK. All right. Nice. That that's a really good connection to make because I don't think that um, when we think about policy, oh, well, when some people think about policy, we don't think about it kind of like on a very practical level, like how is this yeah. impacting people? So when you talk about, uh, so let's get back to what you mentioned about sanctuary schools. Mm. When you talk about sanctuary schools, what are some of the policies that can be implemented to make a school a safe space or a sanctuary space? You know, I, I'm actually, I don't, I'm not as well versed on that. I don't know what the actual policies are. Um, as I understand, and it was, it was more of a set of practices to, um, if ICE were to come to a school, that the school would resist that in some way. Do ICE go to schools? Um, I, I think that they do. I think it depends on where in the country you are. Um, I don't know if it's happened in Connecticut, but that's a good question for folks on the ground because I haven't been as engaged with the immigrants' mm. rights movement as I was when I first started in organizing. So mm. I'm engaged from the perspective that I keep an eye on it like because it's something that matters to me and I try to be supportive, but mm. haven't been in the rooms where the the decisions about policy are being made. So I would definitely suggest like the folks from Unidad Latina or from Junta could mm. give a better, more thorough answer to that. So let, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk a little bit about African-American community. Mm. And um, you've been involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and in this current political climate. One of the things that I notice is that there is a lot of focus on immigrants. There's a lot of focus on Muslims and and the things that are happening that is going to be the most impactful for the black community mm -hmm. has not gotten as much attention. Yeah, so yeah. for example, um, new attorney Gen general Jeff Sessions and recently he commented that he's going to crack down on marijuana offensives because they're the gateway to, what did he say? Like they're the gateway to violence or something like that. Mm. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> people should pay attention because <laughs> that is going to, you know, significantly my impact African-American community. My, mm -hmm. I guess my fear for the political climate is that the things that will be the most impactful to African-American communities is going to be done in a strategic political way. And it's going to be much like what happened during the Clinton era where you people didn't recognize what a huge impact that it would make on African-Americans until five, 10 years later. Like, oh, gee, that took away 20 percent of yes, the fathers yeah. in the household. Yes, right? Yeah. So what is what is it that 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 in your view that African-Americans should be really in the in our community paying attention to yeah. and, and how do we organize <clears throat> and what are the things that we should be organizing around i think i think the appointment of just jeff sessions says a lot about the priorities of the administration um this is a man who was deemed too racist to be um by the racist <laughs> yeah by the racist <laughs> to be taking a, a judge's um seat um i think back in the 80s 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Coretta Scott King wrote a letter about how he's unfit for the role, um, you know, back in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, which was a letter that there was a lot of hullabaloo about right. recently because um, uh, Elizabeth Warren Elizabeth was, was yes, not allowed to read it, it and was told she couldn't read it. And then several other people got up and read it. So mm-hmm. I recommend people read that letter. Um, I think a lot of the things that Trump says about the black community are are incredibly tone deaf and um, and just um, simplistic. We, we the the black community in the United States is incredibly diverse community. Um, there are again there are black immigrants, there are black Muslims, as I know you know, <laughs> and, and my family knows. I've seen a I've, couple. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I I've read that the um, black Muslim community is the largest Muslim community in the country. We are African, black Muslims or African-American Muslims rather are one quarter of the um, the Muslim population in America, mm-hmm. which is the largest percentage when we go, when we look at how many Arab Muslims, how many East Asian Muslims. Huh? So the largest percentage of Muslims. Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of people don't recognize. If you've, if you've seen any of the videos online of immigrants running for the Canadian border, Mm. the only videos i've seen are of somali immigrants so Mm. they're so these are black immigrants and i think i recognize in that a sort of double jeopardy right you know you're 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 black you're an immigrant you may also be muslim Mm. you're here you're hearing this rhetoric you're seeing these policies and and you think it's time to get out these are often folks who have fled countries as refugees before Mm. now fleeing this country i think that's something to pay attention to because um these are folks who would recognize the signs um (laughs) <laughs> that being said, um, I mean, the appointment of Jeff Sessions is incredibly concerning. Um, obviously, Bannon um, and his connections to the quote unquote, you know, I won't even say it. I'm not even going to say it. His connection to white supremacists, because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what they are. Um, and and, the, and the, they're they're not trying at all to hide that. Right. I think they're counting on the fact that there are those of us who are tired of fighting and we want to believe that this administration may do something for us. And I think the history of the black community in this country, especially African-Americans, is one of throwing our weight behind the Democrats and never seeing much of a return in terms of a a real substantial change in the material conditions, especially of poor black people and people who've been through the criminal justice system, the people in the black community who are the most targeted by racism. Mm. So that frustration, I think, sometimes also leads people to want to see um. See, see that there, there's potential in in somebody like Donald Trump. He speaks to somebody who's going to tear down the system, somebody who's going to change the way Washington works. And I think outside of the black community, even there are a lot of people who want to see that um, because a lot of people are tired with the system in this country. I'm one of those folks. I do not trust Donald Trump to do that. And I don't want to do it his way. Um, so I would think that another thing I would say that the black community could focus on is on each other. And is on our history and on our ancestors, because um, there's a lot that we can learn from the the struggles that they fought. Um, <clears throat> and if you recognize that this administration, when they talk about going into Chicago, for example, to stop the violence in Chicago, um, the, I would say the next question to ask is how, mm. right? Because um, and and to think about how Donald Trump thinks. And how he does things. He's not talking about going into Chicago with services. He's not talking about improving the schools there. In fact, Betsy DeVos and and, their, and her people are um, talking about dismantling um, public education, 
through voucher programs, which have been proven to not work. Um, Nancy DeVos just um, compared, uh, just talked about HBCUs in a, in a way that um, completely school choice, <laughs> right? Completely papered over the history of Jim Crow and segregation in a way that that reframed segregation as school choice. Right. That is incredibly important to pay attention to. That is that's scary. Right. They're they're well, talking and about also moving us you, backwards. When you have the education department sending out a tweet. Um, about W.E.B. Du Bois and then misspelling his name. Like you're mm-hmm. the education department, right. really? <laughs> like right. you don't have spell check, <laughs> or not, or not knowing if Frederick Douglass is like currently right. alive is or he, if he died a hundred years ago. He's doing a really good job becoming popular, right? And there, and there were things that, that there there are a lot of things that happened during like this past month, Black History Month, that were that were very alarming. So I, I almost want to say, you know, even paying attention. Or I would say focusing. We do want to pay attention to what the administration is doing, but focusing on what the administration is doing could also drive us crazy. I think the one of the I think the one of the so one of the things that I I, I feel in watching all of the different things that that has been happening. So on one hand, you have the um, appointment of Jeff Sessions, and then uh, um, they then the administration turns around and hosts all of the presidents of all the HBCUs at the White House, I think that what happens is kind of like somebody giving you a, they're, they're, to me, it looks like for the black community, they're hugging us with their left hand and reaching around and stabbing us in the back with the right. Yes, absolutely. So I think absolutely. that that is what people have to be very conscious. So I don't not give them credit for any, um, anything that they're actually doing that's positive, but it does not help when, you know, I have a stab wound in my back. <laughs> right. So that that's yeah. one of the, the um, I think one of the bigger dilemmas. And I think for, for just the fact that African-Americans tend to lean democratic to me, I view that as we have, have chosen neutrality versus racism. So the uh, just that's straight racism comes yeah. from from the Republican Party, straight racism. Um, and we don't have an option right now of progress. Right. So there's kind of like racism on this end, progress on this end, neutrality in the middle. So you got the Republicans over here. You have the Democrats over here. And we're like, there's no progress. So mm-hmm. the Democrats has not done much for black people. Mm-hmm. They're just like. Oh, come on. We're just going to prevent you from going back into slavery. Okay. Yeah. We've done that. Now what you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Now what? <laughs> and that is one of the bigger problems with the Democratic Party is that it's really, I am a registered Democrat, which I'm reconsidering, but mm. <laughs> I think because that, that's one of the big issues with the Democratic Party is like, okay, now that you have yeah. been the great savior, now what you going to do? Right. right? Right. So. And, I, and you know, money's corrupting influence on politics is for sure you know, is, is huge and, and, and present in the Democratic Party. I think I would I would agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I, sometimes I frame it in my mind as like the difference between overt racists who know they're racist mm. and covert racists who maybe mm. are not who may who maybe have some room to believe that they're not racist. Mm. But at the end of the day, there are policies that have been put out by Democrats that, you know, the, yep. the policies that Hillary Clinton was being criticized for being a great example. Yeah. That are racist. Those right. are racist policies. Absolutely. Um, the way that they talked about them were racist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we need to hold Democrats accountable right. for their racism. Racism isn't just not saying the N word. <laughs> right. And and we have to acknowledge that also there are people making policy here in the state of Connecticut who hold similar 
racist beliefs, Absolutely. maybe not recognizing that that's what it is. But we it's time, I think, um, for, you know, radical truth telling. I think it's it's really important to call those things out. Um, also would say with the HBCU story, I read an, um, a blog post that was really interesting by somebody who was there um, who told a story of how that photo op came to be that was actually quite disturbing because it sounded like they were invited to come. He was invited to speak and he had a whole speech written that he didn't get to give because instead they were ushered into the president's office, into the White House or the or the Oval Office and um, for this photo op. And then they only each had, um, he said they had two minutes to speak and then they only had one minute to speak and then half the people didn't get to speak at all. So he said mm. there was very little listening to HBCUs that day. Mm. But that photo op happened and the policy came out and I find it hard to believe that that was not the plan from the beginning. Let's get these black folk in here. Right. Let's get them in the office. Let's take a picture. Right. We don't need to so, listen to them. So that it can look like that. Uh, it's a all circus. my African Americans. Right. It's it's <laughs> a it's a it's a spectacle, and it and it's mm. not. And it, and I hope that more of these HBCU presidents will speak about their experience there, um, in an honest way, because um, so so we have <clears throat> a couple of minutes left to the mm-hmm. show. Tell me, leave us with what people can do to organize. Mm, that's a great question. Um, I think if you've never organized before, a great place to start is getting to know the people around you, um, the people in your community, especially people that you wouldn't otherwise talk to. Um, organizers usually do these one-on-one meetings. It doesn't have to be so formal as that, but just sitting down with somebody for 45 minutes or you know, an hour or having tea together or lunch and getting to know what their lives are like. Um, I think it's important for us to really connect with each other and then to connect with work that's going on in our community that we believe in. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, CT core organized now um, we're doing work to um, uh, engage black people, people of color and allies who are interested in building ba- bonds of solidarity and developing an agenda for people of color. Um, I was saying, and I want to go back to this too, because in, in answer to some of what we were just mulling over in terms of, reckoning with the administration's position um, relative to black communities and what black communities should be focused on. I think we need to be also focused on developing our own agenda because nobody outside of the black community is going to be able to come up with an agenda that speaks to our experiences Mm -hmm. because they have not had them. And we have the answers within us, within our community. Um, So we can come together and talk about what our experiences are. We need to recognize the fullness of the diversity of blackness in this Mm. country. Recognize that some of us are immigrants, recognize that some of us are Muslim, some of us are queer, some of us are women. You know, there's, there's so much difference of experience and so much commonality. And if we can come together and discuss that, which is some of what CT core organized now is doing. And I would welcome anybody listening to, to get involved. Um, You know, we need, we need to come together talk about those issues and come up with our own platform and our own agenda for what policies need to look like in order to um, really um, move our community forward. Mm. As long as we sit back and wait for Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, whoever else, um, even if they look like us to come up with those policies, we're going to be disappointed. We need to, we need to put ourselves in the driver's seat and recognize that we are the leaders we have been waiting for. So, um, Absolutely. So yeah, I would. Um, I don't know if I can put out like how people can get in touch with Absolutely. us. Absolutely, De- definitely. Tell us how to get in touch with you. So um, you can. So our website is www.ctcore. 
www.organizenow.org. Um, you can email me at Kamel, C-A-M-E-L-L-E, at ctcore-organizenow.org. Um, you can follow us on Facebook or ctcore-organizenow.org. And you can also follow me on Facebook. I just actually started my own page awesome. um, called Kamel um, for the Community. Um, so you can follow me um, and, you know, I share articles. I share my perspective on issues. I'd love to hear your perspective. Um, and I hope that people will get involved, support CT Core. You can donate. Um, you can come out to our events. Um, we just really want to meet more people and and um, do this work together. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Thank you for having and me. And thank you all for listening. Everybody who listened online as well as uh, everybody that's listening live on radio or on uh, New Haven Independent, you've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, reminding you to be a voice and not an echo. Mm. I love that.